alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. Now you may exclaim, what an order. I can't go through with it. But do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We're not saints. The point is that we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic. We found that in the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, some of it in chapters 2 and 3. The chapter to the agnostic. Chapter 4. And our personal adventures before and after. Bill's story and those in the back of the book. Have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas. Bill was a salesman, you know. A, that you are alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. Step one. B, that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism. Part of step two. C, that God can and will. The rest of step two. Now, if you're not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else just throw it away. (laughs) I don't think he was kidding around, was he? No, it's evident that Bill did not intend for this to be a set of suggestions. He intended for it to be a set of directions. He said so three or four different times. A set of directions to the individual alcoholic on how to recover from alcoholism. Because he kept saying, you got to do this and you got to do that and you and you and you and you and you. And that's when the crap hit the fan. The other member said, Bill, you don't have any business giving anybody directions. Nobody can give directions in this little fellowship. And they said, you don't have any business telling any individuals what they have to do. And they said, Bill, this sounds too much like the Oxford Group Absolutes. You're talking about on your knees, holding nothing back, complete amends. Sounds too much like absolute honesty, so on and so on and so forth. They said, you need to change this. And Bill said, no, I don't either. I'm not going to change this. And they said, well, yeah, you are. And he said, no, I'm not. And they said, Bill, don't you remember? This is not your book. It's ours. And we have the right to insist on changing it any way we want to. And Bill said, I don't care. I'm not going to change it. And they said, yeah, you are. And he said, what you guys don't understand, these aren't even my words. He said, these are God's words. They came after prayer and meditation. And they said, we don't give a damn whose words they are. We're going to change it. And the fight was on. And they almost destroyed not only the foot project, they almost destroyed the little fellowship over the writing of how it works. And Bill very, very reluctantly finally realized If they're going to get on with the rest of the book, he's going to have to compromise. So he said to them, he said, I'm willing to compromise, but you guys are going to have to compromise with me. And they said, well, what do you want? And he said, if I'm to finish the rest of the book, you're going to have to give me the authority to do so. He said, I'm tired. I'm not going to fight with you anymore. And they didn't want to give him that authority. He said, if you don't want to do that, then you finish the book. And they didn't want to give him that authority. But they didn't want to finish the book either. They very reluctantly agreed to make those changes. 
A non-alcoholic psychiatrist who was around in those days said, why don't you change it from directions to suggestions? He still would get your meaning across, and you probably wouldn't alienate so many people. And he said, where well, you keep saying you, 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 he said, don't do that. He said, say we, we, we. Tell them this is what we had to do rather than what you have to do. And where you keep saying must, must, change that to ought, ought. And probably more people would use your book. Now, we don't know. If they hadn't made those changes, instead of two million worldwide today, we might have ten million. But also, if they hadn't made those changes, instead of two million worldwide today, we might only have ten thousand. Who knows? We just know that this is the history behind this particular part of the book. But Bill was cunning and baffling and powerful, too. Because when he forced this compromise on them, and they gave him the authority to finish the rest of the book, what they didn't know but what he knew is two pages later, he's going to put directions right back in the book. <laughs> and he's going to put you and must right back in the book. He's had it all the way up to this time, jerked it out of how it works, and then turned right around and put it right back in and destroyed some of the continuity of the book. But now that we know what happened, we can see what actually transpired and took place there. The other thing that is so important is when he said our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after have been designed to sell you three pertinent ideas. And the three pertinent ideas are contained in steps one and two. And then he said, if you're not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. Because you can't go any further unless you've got one and two behind you. People come to us today and they say, well, how do you work steps one and two? And we say you don't. They're not working steps. They're not action steps. They're conclusions of the mind that we draw based on information presented to us in the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. I've always been powerless over alcohol. My life has always been unmanageable because of that. I just did not know that, nor did I know why. And not until I read the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. There's always been a power greater than I am could restore me to sanity. I just didn't think that power would do so. Nor did I understand the insanity I had to be restored from until I read the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. Now, if I can say to myself today, you betcha. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. I'm through with step one. If I can say to myself today, you betcha, I believe there's a power greater than I am can restore me to sanity. I'm through with step two. And I don't think it's by accident. The very next statement in the book says being convinced on those vital issues, being convinced we are now at step three. You see, that's why you can't start with chapter 5, because chapter 5 starts with step 3. 
And it's hard to start with three unless you got one and two behind you from the doctor's opinion and the first four chapters, yo. So it said being convinced we were at step three. We're not ready to take step three yet. We're just at step three. Let's talk about three for just a little bit, and then we'll take a break. Okay. Which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God's we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? Just what do we do? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? We're going to make a decision to turn our will. What is our will? Our will is our thinking. Our life is our actions. We're going to make a decision to turn our thinking and our life, our actions, over the care and direction of God as we understood him. Major, major decisions to be made here. I hear many people today say, I've been in AA five years. My life's still all screwed up. Don't understand why. Because I turned it over to God four years ago when it took step three. No, we don't turn anything over to God in step three. We make a decision to turn something over. And the word decision itself implies there's going to have to be some further action. A good example in my own life. My wife Barbara and I, some years ago, we decided to go to Los Angeles, California to visit some relatives. But we didn't do anything to carry out that decision. And sure enough, we didn't get to California either. <laughs> the second year in a row, we made the same decision. Still didn't do anything to carry it out, and we didn't get to California either. Third year in a row, we made the same decision. Only this time, it was a little different. I took the car down and had it serviced. Barbara packed some clothes and a little food. And we got in our car and we drove from our home to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Then we drove to Oklahoma City. Then we drove to Amarillo, Texas. Then we drove to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Then we drove to Flagstaff, Arizona. Then we drove to Barstow, California. Then we drove to Los Angeles. And we ended up visiting with our relatives in their living room. Not because we made a decision to do so, but because we took the action necessary to carry out that decision. All we're doing in step three is making a decision to do something. What are we deciding to do? We're making a decision to turn our will over to the care and the step originally said and direction of God as we understood it. Now, what is our will? Our will is nothing more than our thinking apparatus. Our will is nothing more than this thing up here in our head that tells us what to do and what not to do. You know, a good example of tying will and thinking together is let's say some of us are beginning to approach the end of our lives. We've gathered up a few material things, and we become concerned with what's going to happen to them when we pass on. If we get concerned enough, we'll go sit down with an attorney, and we'll tell that attorney what we want done with these things. I want this to go to my wife. I want this to go to my daughter. I want this to go to my son, and etc. And that attorney will take my thinking from my mind that day, write it down in legal terms on a sheet of paper, and I'll sign it, and maybe the attorney will sign it as a witness, and we put it in the safe. Now, a year or two later, sure enough, I kicked the bucket. And my family's like the rest of them. They're not going to wait very long. 
They're going to call the undertaker and say, come and get him and get him ready so we can get him out there and get him in the ground. Now, used to, they waited four or five days. Now, they do it in just a day or two. They don't waste much time. They take me out to the cemetery, and I'm suspended in a box over a hole in the ground. A few people standing around it, and I hope they're AA people. And hopefully somebody will utter a little prayer. And then they'll start dropping me in the hole. Now, if my family's like the rest of them, they don't even wait till I get to the bottom of the hole. <laughs> they jump in the car, and they go right back to that attorney's office. And that attorney gets out that piece of paper and reads to them my thinking when I was in that office two or three years prior to that time. We know they call that piece of paper a will, and it's not by accident. Will, thinking, mind are all synonymous. I'm making a decision to turn my thinking apparatus over the care of God as I understand him. And by the way, as far as we know, we're the only species on earth that's ever faced with this decision. Because as far as we know, we're the only species on earth that has this thing called self-will. Everything else on earth, they operate on God's will in God's time. But for some reason, he gave us the right to operate on self-will or God's will. So we're making a decision to turn our will over to the care of God as we understand it. What else are we deciding to turn over? We're making a decision to turn our life over to the care of God as we understand it. What is my life? My life is nothing more than my actions. What I am right now, as of this moment, sitting behind this table, is the sum accumulative total of all the actions I've taken throughout my entire lifetime is what's made me what I am today. Now, we know all action is born in thought. Say that again, please. All action is born in thought. Sometimes we react to a situation so fast, we think we do it automatically, but we don't. I can't even pick up this glass of water unless my mind tells my body to do so. So if all action is born in thought, then it stands to reason my life is going to be determined by how I think. If my thinking is okay, my actions are okay, and my life becomes okay. If my thinking is lousy, my actions are lousy, and my life is going to be lousy too. And I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't believe I can take step three. And he said, why? And I said, because if I turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understand him, I have no idea what he would have me be. He, want me to, he may want me to be a missionary. And he may want to send me to China. And I sure as hell don't want to go to China. <laughs> and he just laughed. <laughs> he said, well, let's look at it this way. At least it wouldn't be in the hands of an idiot, would it? He said, let's look back through your lifetime, Charlie. He said, you've always been a selfish, self-centered, self-willed human being. You've always done what you wanted to do and to hell with the rest of them. Is that right? And I said, you know it is. He said, the end result is you've almost destroyed your life. And he said, just as important, you've almost destroyed the lives of those around you that care for you. 
He said, just think. If God could direct your thinking, it might become better. And he said, if your thinking becomes better, then your actions will probably become better. And he said, if your actions become better, then your life's going to become better. And he said, just as important, the lives of those around you that care for you might become better also. He stepped back about three feet, stuck his bony old finger right in the middle of my chest. And he said, now you have to make the decision. He said, I wish I could make it for you, but I can't. This is one you'll have to do yourself. And he got it through to me in such a way that I was willing to make the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him simply because of the fact that I had almost destroyed it myself and God couldn't do a worse job with it than I did. And based on that, I made the decision. Joe? The book says that the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will could hardly be a, could hardly be a success. Remember, we talked about precisely, specifically, exactly with clear-cut directions. We're beginning to get those directions now. And it says the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we're almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. Life would be wonderful. Now, isn't that true? If everybody would mind me and do what I tell them to do, they would be happier and I would be happier. Now, I've been married to Phyllis for off and on for 37 years. <laughs> Jim, I don't believe she's going to mind. <laughs> 37 years now, she doesn't mind. I don't think she's going to. The reason is, they say, I have a will for Phyllis. And Phyllis has a will for herself. Everybody's got one. That's the problem with it. And my will for Phyllis is not always her will for Phyllis. And I try to force my will on Phyllis, we have problems, big problems. Sometimes they throw your stuff out in the yard, which used to happen, because I'm trying to force my life and my, my will on Phyllis. I need to stop doing that. The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a, a success. I have to give that up. Let's go over to page 62, first paragraph. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves, and the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. 
There often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. You know, if this is a God-directed world, and everything I read leads me to believe that's so, that those of us who have been self-directed, and those of us who have been trying to direct everything and everybody around us, well, we've been trying to do God's work for Him. And we're not God, we've just been playing at being God. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director, not our suggester. <laughs> he is the principal, we are his agents. He is the father, and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. Now we're referring to that wonderfully effective spiritual structure again. Step one, willingness was the foundation. Step two, believing was the cornerstone. Now he tells us we're building an arch. They're going to pass through to freedom. And the keystone of that arch, which is the stone up in top of the arch that holds it in place, the keystone is one simple little idea. We're going to let God be the director. Most good ideas are simple. And it couldn't be any more simpler than this to decide that instead of being self-directed, I'm going to start trying to be God-directed. And by the way, there's no other choices. I either operate on self-will or God's will, one of the two. I'm trying to get off of self-will, which almost destroyed me, and start trying to get on God's will, hoping that it will make it better in the future. I almost missed that little simple idea. Because when I first started praying, I said, God, give me this, and God, give me that, and get my wife back for me, help me make more money, get me a new car. I used God like he would an errand boy to go out and take care of stuff for me. And after I'd been sober for a while, I read in that other, other big book, it said he, re he worked for six days, and then he rested. To my knowledge, he didn't have to go back to work anymore. <laughs> it looks to me like there's going to be any work being done around here. It's going to be me. He's the father, we're the children. He's the principal, we're the agent. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arts which we passed to freedom. I almost missed that. Our book says that when we sincerely took such a position, page 63, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. I'm supposed to perform his work well. I thought he was supposed to perform my work well, but he didn't. Now, now, here's the results of this thing. We don't have to wait till step 12 to get something out of it. Look at the results of this decision. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. See, takers are losers, you see. 
not only in AA, but everywhere. Takers are losers. I'm today, I'm trying to see what I can contribute to life instead of take. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter we were reborn. And boy, I used to hate that idea about being reborn. I sure did. They used to come over to my house and talk to me about being reborn. Knocking on the door. Want to come in and visit and talk to me about being reborn. And you know what I said to them? I said, boy, is this is Monday night football. And I'm here drinking and having a good time. And you're coming over. Get your... And going back home. That was a nice version of it. And going back home. See, they were trying to help me. But I didn't know that. But I could buy these ideas that we've been talking about. And now I was ready to do this third step. I was definitely ready. Our book said we were now at step three. And I couldn't wait to get down to that little church the next Sunday. I got there about 11 o'clock. And they do this every Sunday about 11 o'clock. Not only there, but in many, many places. They basically are asking people to come and do the third step prayer. Okay? And I got there about two or three minutes before 11. I didn't want to get there too early. I might hear something that helped me. So I got there about two or three minutes before 11, and they asked people to come down and do the third step, basically. And this is what I did. Many of us said to our makers, we understood him. God, I offer myself to you to bear with me and do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bonds of self that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulty that victory over them may bear witness to those that I would help of your power, your love, and your way of life. May I do your will always. We thought well before taking this, making this step, making sure that we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. Now, I don't know what happened that morning. I'm not smart enough to know. But I know from that morning until this day, my life hasn't been the same. It had been like I've been on the dark side of the street for all those years. And after this third step, I'm on the sunny side of the street. I went over to my mom's house that afternoon. And she wanted to know what happened. You know, they always want to know what happened, don't they? Bill asked Abby, he said, what's this all about? I queried. What's what's happened to you, Abby? And my mother said to me, what happened to you? Benny Joe, that's my name. That's what she called me. And I told her about this experience, and she smiled. That's all she ever wanted from her children, was to live that way. That's all she ever wanted. Later on, I went over to see Phyllis, and if Phyllis was telling this story, she would say that I was her Ebby. There was something about my eyes. I was inexplicably different, she said. What happened? See, I don't know. There's a story in that other big, big book. They asked that guy, I said, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. He said, I was blind and now I can see. I don't know. I was drunk and now I'm sober. That's all I really do know, you see. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready. And we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. And I think utterly means completely, wholeheartedly, the whole ball of wax. Don't make the mistake I did. First time I took step three, I got on my knees, which I very seldom did. And I said, God, I offer myself to thee the bill with me and do with me as thou wilt. 
relieve me of the bondage yourself, so on, so on, and so forth. And I said, now this applies to my alcohol. <laughs> Don't fool with my sex life. <laughs> Stay out of my money. I can take care of that, too. God probably said, water and order. I can't go through with it. <laughs> Today I realize that God doesn't want my alcohol. He probably doesn't even drink. He wants all of me completely. And just think, if he could direct all my thinking, it might become better in the sex area. If he can direct all my thinking, it might become better in the economic area. If he could direct my thinking in all areas of my life, then my life should become better in all areas. Not just dealing with alcohol, but everything else. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. You know, we are, as human beings, we are tridimensional creatures. We are meant to live with God. We're meant to live with ourselves. We're meant to live with our fellow human beings. And if we take this step, with another human being, for the first time now, we're starting to fix ourselves, fit ourselves back together as God intends for us to be in the first place. That's why it says to God and another human being here in this thing. Now, we're going to ask you to do a favor just before we take the break. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but we're going to ask you to anyhow. We're going to ask you to reach out and hold hands with those on each side of you. And I'm going to read this step. And I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. God, I offer myself to thee. God, I offer myself to thee. To build with me and do with me as thou wilt. To build with me and do with me as I will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Relieve me of the bondage of self. That I may better do thy will. That I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties. Take away my difficulties. That victory over them may bear witness. That victory over them may bear witness. To those I would help of thy power. To those that I would help of thy power. Thy love. Thy love. And thy way of life. And thy way of life. May I do thy will always. May I do thy will always. Amen. Amen. You'll never have to worry about step three. You've just taken it right now. <laughs> all, all we have to do now is do it every day, one day at a time. Let's take about a little short 10, 15-minute break, then we're going to jump right into step four. We need to be back now in about 10 or 15 minutes. We uh, start in the step four. And I think we need to face the fact that when Bill wrote the big book, he was a night school lawyer. He was a New York City stock speculator. But when he wrote the big book, he was able to write one of the most spiritual books dealing with human nature the world's ever seen. Surely, God used Bill's hand to write the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Thirteen years later, he made a decision to write the 12 and 12. 
been trying for years to sell the traditions to the fellowship, and the fellowship really didn't want them. And I think he felt if he could put the traditions together in a book with the steps, that the traditions would be more acceptable than to the fellowship. We do not think the 12 and 12 was meant to replace the big book. You can't work the steps out of the 12 and 12. And the reason you can't is because there's no directions in there. And that's why a lot of people really love it. Because <laughs> they can get in it and dance around and philosophize and never have to do anything at all. But there's some information in there. And in the 12 and 12, he talks about, and actually it's in step four, about the first two or three pages, he talks about the three basic instincts of life, which are God-given, and that they are absolutely necessary for survival of the human race. Let's take a look at them for just a few minutes. It'll make it, it'll really show why we need to take step three, and it's going to set us up with some information that we need Thank you. for step four. Joe, you want to put that on the screen? This coffee, you mean? Oh. <laughs> and, of course, you've got a picture now to match this in your handout sheet. And Bill tells us there that all human beings are born with these three basic instincts of life, that they are God-given, they are absolutely necessary for survival of the human race, and therefore they are good things. He talks about the social instinct, the security instinct, and the sex instinct. Yeah. My feelings exactly. And under the social instinct, he said, all human beings are born with a desire to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected by other people. He said, all human beings are born with the desire to come together in groups with other human beings. And he said, if we didn't have those desires, if we cared nothing about each other, that the world would go into a complete dog-eat-dog -dog situation, complete anarchy would reign, and under those conditions, the human race would simply fail to survive. So those feelings that you and I have, to be liked, to be accepted, to be respected, to come together in groups with other human beings, they are God-given things, and therefore they are good. He uses several terms under that social instinct. He uses the word companionship. And that's nothing more than wanting to belong or to be accepted by other people. So many of us grew up on the outside of the crowd looking in. Wanted to be a part of and knew we could not be. And knew that whatever we said, whatever we did would be wrong and people would laugh and we would be embarrassed. And always scared to death with what other people thought of us. He uses the term prestige. Prestige is wanting to be recognized or be accepted as the leader of the group. And the world needs leaders. Somebody has to make decisions. I guess even in the old caveman days, somebody had to say, Jewel, get behind that tree with your spear. 
Billy Jack, you get behind that bush with your club. And Mary Jo and I'll run this sucker through there and we'll have something to eat. Somebody has to do that. And most people will take one of two directions. Either let me be a part of or let me be the leader of. And in the case, it's going to be based upon what other people think of us. If they like us and accept us, we can become those things. Bill said it in his story. The great drive for success was on. I'd prove to the world I'm important. Self-esteem. Self-esteem is what we think of ourselves. And it's either usually too high or too low, one of the two. And it's usually based upon what other people think of us or what we think other people think of us. And if they like us and accept us and respect us, then we feel pretty good toward ourselves. If they don't, we feel pretty lousy toward ourselves. Pride. And I'm glad I got in the habit of going to the dictionary. I always thought pride was something you're supposed to have. As a young boy growing up, all I ever wanted to be was a man who walked tall with pride and a little bit sideways like John Wayne did. That's all I ever wanted to be. But the dictionary defines it as an excessive and unjustified opinion of oneself. It's either too high or too low. It's very seldom the truth. Personal relationships are relations with the world, other human beings and the world around us. Ambitions are our plans for the future to gain acceptance, power, recognition, prestige, and etc. All human beings have these feelings. Now, if we want to be liked and accepted and respected by the world and the people in it, the first thing we've got to do is decide, well, what is it we need to do? What is it we need to become? And society teaches us these things as we grow up. And as we watch the adults and we see what they do and we read about things, then we, in turn, begin to set goals for ourselves. And we write up a little script in our head as to what we're going to become and what we're going to do. And it'll vary in different parts of the world. One part of the world is to have a good education. Another part of the world is to be a large landowner. Another part of the world is to have a big family. Another part of the world is to be a good fisherman. It could be any number of things. And as we grow up, we determine what we're going to become. And we begin to set goals, and we begin to work toward the completion of those goals. And as we work toward the completion of those goals, we're going to have to work at it. You can't just be a bum and sit on your duff and have people like you and accept you and respect you. At the same token, we're going to have to make some sacrifices. There are some things that I would really like to do as a human being that are very exciting and very pleasurable. But if I do them and you catch me at it, you're not going to like me at all. And I don't think you and I would do the work necessary to reach the goal. Now, make the sacrifices necessary to be acceptable. Unless we got a reward for doing so. And the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal. How many of us have set that goal for the education for the new business, whatever it might be, 
and we work and we work and we strive and we strive. And the day we become successful and they pat us on the back and they say, Oh, Joe, you're a fine fellow. You're a great man. You're really a smart individual. And we get that praise and recognition. And there's a feeling that comes over us, which really is one of those indescribably wonderful feelings. The only thing wrong with it, though, it seems to be just a temporary feeling. You know, the sooner reach the goal, you get the praise, you get the recognition, it feels great. And then you look around and you say, well, is this all there is to it? And you set another goal. And you work and you work and you strive and you strive and you reach the new goal. And you get the praise and the power and the recognition that comes with it, but it doesn't last long. And you set another goal. And it seems to create within we human beings an insatiable desire for more and more recognition more and more acceptance, more and more power, and we're not getting it fast enough, not giving it to us the way we think they ought to, so what do we do? Well, we start taking shortcuts. We start doing a little lying, a little conning, a little manipulating, a little stepping on other people's toes and climbing on their backs, and the instant we do so, we create pain and suffering for others. They retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. The book says it's plain that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success because under those conditions we're always in collision with people, places, and things. Second basic instinct is the security instinct. Now, I know in AA we try to live one day at a time, but I also noticed about everybody in this room has got an insurance policy. And the purpose of the insurance policy is to protect ourselves in the future. Bill said all human beings are born with this desire to be secure in the future. And if we didn't have that desire, we wouldn't provide the food, the clothing, the shelter, the things that we need. And next drought season, we would just starve to death. Next winter season, we would just freeze to death. So these desires that you and I have to be secure tomorrow is a basic God-given thing. Now, just like with a social instinct, if I'm going to be secure tomorrow, I'm going to have to decide, well, what is it that I need in order to be secure? Society teaches us these things, and it varies in different parts of the world. One part of the world, you only need four dollars. Another part of the world, you need 4,000. Another part of the world, you need 4 million. Another part of the world, you need 192 coconuts, whatever it is, that they use to measure and trade and barter by. And based upon what we see and what we're taught, we set goals for ourselves. And we begin to work toward reaching that goal. And you're going to have to work at it. You can't be a bum and sit on your duff and be secure tomorrow. You're going to have to make some sacrifices. You can't blow it all today and be secure tomorrow. And I don't think you and I would do the work or make the sacrifices if we didn't get a reward for doing so. The great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the goal, and it's now mine and nobody can touch it. My God, how many of us have done it? Started out as a kid, we wanted a new bicycle. And we worked and we worked and we strived and we strived and we finally got a bicycle that cost about ten bucks and enjoyed it for a little while. 
But after we rode the bicycle for a while, we looked around and said, hell, I'd rather have a car. So we set our goal for the new car. Then we set our goal for the new dress, for the new shoes, for the new home, for the new furniture, for the new this and for the new that, for the new business, for the new piece of property. And we work and we work and we strive and we strive and we reach the goal. And every time we reach it and nobody can take it away from us, my God, what a great feeling that is. When I was a kid growing up, hardly anybody ever owned their own home. Nearly everybody rented. And once in a great while, somebody would get enough money to make a down payment on a little old three-room shack of some kind. And they would pay and pay and pay and pay and pay and pay. And the day that sucker was paid off, you know what we did? We had a party. We called in all the neighbors. And we celebrated by burning the mortgage. They can't take it away from us now. What a great feeling that is. Only thing wrong with it is just a temporary feeling. I no sooner get the new car and I look around and that guy right there has got a Cadillac and I'm driving a Chevrolet. <laughs> this guy over here has got a Brooks Brothers suit and I bought mine at Kmart's. And it caused us to set a new goal. And we work and we work and we strive and we strive and it seems to create within we human beings an insatiable desire for more and more and more and more and more. And we're not getting it fast enough. Not giving it to us like we think they should, so what do we do? Do we take shortcuts? We lie. We cheat. We steal. We con. We manipulate. And the instant we do so, we create pain and suffering for others. They, in turn, retaliate against us, create pain and suffering for us. Plain that a life run on self will can hardly ever be a success. Under those conditions, we're always in collision with people, places, and things. Third basic instinct he talked about is the sex instinct. I always have to stop and take a drink of water before I start. He gets excited about this. He said all human beings are born with a desire to have sex. They may get turned off by bad teachings or bad happenings, but all human beings are born with a desire to have sex because if we don't have sex, we can't reproduce ourselves. And if we don't reproduce ourselves, then sure enough, the human race is going to fail to survive. Just like the other two instincts, if you're going to reproduce yourself through the sexual act, you're going to have to work at it. You know, you can do more work in three minutes of sex. If you can last that long, then you'll do all day digging a ditch. Don't you older guys remember how it used to be when you got through with it? My God, you just fall over sideways. The sweat's just pouring off of you. You can hardly get your breath. You feel like you've died, gone to heaven, and come back two or three times. And I don't think you and I would do that kind of work if we didn't get a reward for doing so. And the great reward comes at the moment of successful completion of the sex act. One of the greatest feelings we can experience as human beings, both emotionally and physically. One of the greatest feelings you can possibly have. But also, just like the other two, it's just a temporary feeling. Hell, you no sooner get through with doing it than you get to thinking about doing it again. 
And it's such a pleasurable and such an exciting thing. The next thing you know, you get to thinking about doing it in different ways. And you get to thinking about doing it in different positions. And you get to thinking about doing it with different people. And the next thing you know, you're doing it at the wrong time, in the wrong way, with the wrong people. And the instant you do so, you create pain and suffering for others. Yeah. And they retaliate against us and create pain and suffering for us. Plain that a life run on self-will can hardly ever be a success. Because under those conditions, we're always in collision with people, places, and things. God knows that these things are necessary for our survival. He also knows that we're not going to do these things if it's not pleasurable. And there's where the rub comes in. It is so pleasurable that all human beings at one time or another will overdo in one or more of these areas and create pain and suffering for other people. It's just about that simple. You know, if, if all human beings on earth today could fulfill these basic instincts of life at the level that God intends, there would be no conflict on earth today. But they are so pleasurable, we just can't resist overdoing in one or more of those areas and create all kinds of problems with other people. And we're constantly in collision with other people. You know, every emotional problem on earth today, every emotional problem on earth today could be solved through these basic instincts of life if we all did them at the level that God intends for it to be. Every emotional problem stems from these three basic instincts of life. Now, coming out of those three basic instincts, you see a little circle called self. That's where self-will comes from. Trying to fulfill these basic instincts of life. That's what causes us to think the way we think and causes us to do the things that we do. And coming out of that self circle, you see another one called wrongs. That's the word we have to look at. Somewhere in AA, we got the idea that the word wrongs meant a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. But if you go to the dictionary and look it up, you'll find several definitions for that word. One definition of the word wrong is incorrect judgment of others. A little later on in step four, we're going to find out that's exactly what a resentment is. Another definition of the word wrong is incorrect believing. A little later on in the fourth step, we're going to find out that's what most of our fears are. They're really not true. Another definition of the word wrong are the harms and hurts that we do to others. And a little later on in step four, we're going to look at those things and see the truth behind them. Now, it's very easy to spot a selfish, self-centered human being. They will always display three common manifestations of self. Number one, they're going to be madder in hell all the time. Damn him and damn her, and by God, I'll show them, and they're not going to treat me that way, and I'll get even with those SOBs, and blah, 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 blah. Selfish, self-centered human being scared to death. Can't depend on God. Can't depend on other human beings. If we're an alcoholic reaching the end of the road, we can't depend on ourselves anymore. 
And we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know when it gets here, it's not going to be worth a damn whatever it is. Absolutely scared to death. Selfish, self-centered human beings in trying to fulfill these basic instincts of life. And in overdoing them, it's always going to create harms and hurts for other people. And we're not drunken bums. We got a conscience. And the guilt and the remorse associated with those things just literally eat us up. And it's easy to see that selfish, self-centered human being. They're always mad, always afraid, and they're always filled with guilt and remorse. Now, we're trying to find a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind and serenity so that we can stay sober in the future. And if we remain restless, irritable, and discontented, if we remain angry, resentful, and afraid, and filled with guilt and remorse, we don't feel good. And we're going we're gonna to exist under those conditions just so long. And the mind's going to start seeking relief. It's going to start thinking about the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, we become insane. And we end up drunk all over again. So we're going to have to do something about the way we think, about these things in our mind that are the result of a life lived on self-will. If God could direct our thinking, we could fulfill these instincts at the level He wants. If I direct my thinking, I'll fulfill them at the level I want, and I will always overdo it's just that simple. One another reason why we do this at this time is because these words that you see here, companionship, prestige, self-esteem, pride, ambitions, all those words are in and around the fourth step in the, in the big book. Bill didn't go into great detail expected to explain them. He assumed we knew what he was talking about, but I didn't. I don't know about you, but I didn't. That third column affects my. I didn't know what was there and why, what was affected by it. So I just skipped over that column. You see, and that's why we do this, to get a working knowledge of these words, primarily, I think, so we can look at the third column and see what part of self is affected by the actions that we have just had with others. We didn't understand what part of self was affected. We know the first column and the second column, those are easy. It's what part of self is affected in the third column that we skip over, or at least I did. Okay, we finished up now with step three. We all did the prayer together a while ago. And now then it's time for us to go to work to start carrying out the decision that we made in step three. Bottom of page 63. Next, we launched down on a course of vigorous action. The first step of which is a personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision, referring to step three, was a vital and crucial step. It could have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. The first thing we look at is the time element between step three and step four. We hear this question asked all over the country. 
And we hear some people say, well, you ought to wait probably 30 days after you do step three. Another one might say you probably ought to wait six months. Uh, We heard a counselor in the field counseling people to wait a minimum of two years to do step four. And our question back to that counselor was, how many people have you killed with that statement? You see, we're trying to find a way to live where we can have a little peace of mind, serenity, happiness, and sobriety at the same time. The longer we put off step four, the longer we're restless, irritable, and discontented. The longer we're filled with anger and fear and shame and guilt and remorse, and we don't feel good, the greater chance that we're going to take a drink. I don't know how long I could go under those conditions. And frankly, I'm not very interested in finding out. The book tells us when to take it. Step three will have little permanent effect unless followed at once by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things within ourselves which had been blocking us, blocking us from what? From carrying out that decision. And you know that makes sense. As far as I know, four has always followed immediately after three. So, as soon as we get three, we started on four. Now, knowing that we might get drunk if we don't do that, why do we tend to continue to procrastinate on step four? Now, I think one of the reasons is some of the older members play king off of the mountain with this step. They say, just wait till you get to step four. By God, we just literally scare them to death. Let us be the first to say today, if we do the step four the way the book says to do it, there's not a thing in the world to be afraid of. There's nothing to be scared about. Now, knowing that, and knowing we might get drunk, why do we tend to continue to procrastinate? And I think one of the reasons is, for years and years and years, we didn't understand how to do step four here in the big book. And in our confusion, we read something in step five that said something about all your life story, and we said, oh, yeah, that's what they wanted us to do in four. And we began to write our life story for step four. Now, my life story wasn't, probably wasn't very important to other people. Must have been to me, though, because I had 92 pages in it. And I took it to another poor, suffering alcoholic and asked him to read it. And he read it and said, not very pretty, is it? And I said, no. And he threw it in a waste paper basket. He said, you'll never have to be that way again. I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism by the writing of my life story. Everything I wrote down, I already knew. And as I look back at it today, 95% of my life story has nothing to do with my alcoholism. The fact that I was born in 1929 has nothing to do with my alcoholism. may have something to do with somebody else's alcoholism, but not mine. The fact that I graduated from high school age 17 went immediately into service. I don't think it's got a thing to do with my alcoholism. The fact I was married at age 21 got nothing to do with it. But I'll tell you what it did do. The 95% that had nothing to do with it very effectively covered up the 5% that did. 
and I learned nothing to contribute to my alcoholism from the writing of my life story. So in desperation, somebody in Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote a four-step inventory guide. And we got the Minneapolis guide, combined it with a big book, and we got more confused yet. Somebody in Dallas, Texas wrote a four-step inventory guide. And we got it, and we combined it with a Minneapolis guide and the big book, and then we really got confused. I have no idea how many inventory guides are out there today. And we saw one one time that had 20 pages in it. And I'll guarantee you, if you wasn't crazy as hell before you took it, you would be when you were through with it. It was one of those kind. And all the time, the instructions have been here in the book. We just didn't understand how Bill writes. And if we're going to understand how to do step four, we just kind of got, got to kind of sit back and relax. And we've got to realize two things. Number one, Bill loves to teach by making comparisons, talking about something we already know to teach us something new. He loves to compare two different things. Another thing he does all the way through the book, he repeats himself quite often. But when he does, he finds a different word that means the same thing. Bearing those two things in mind, let's just kind of sit back and relax and let's see if we can't see how simple this thing really is. We're going to put a little picture up here on the screen. You got one that'll match it called the Step 4 Inventory Comparison. Now let's see what he has to say about it. On one side of that is business and the other side is personal. And Joe's got them both covered up at the present time. And we're going to take a few key words out of the big book and put them up there on that screen. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Immediately he goes to business. A business which makes no, takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So I think his first comparison is this. If you've got a business and you don't inventory once in a while, and by the way, inventory is defined as a written list of items. If you don't inventory once in a while, you don't know what's been stolen from your store that you didn't get paid for. You wouldn't know what's been sold, and you need to reorder to have something to take its place. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become out of style. And you need to put it on sale and get rid of it. Because it's sitting in the store, taking up valuable floor space, shelf space, probably paying interest on borrowed money to get it in the first place, and it sits there day after day after day after day, and it's costing you money. If you didn't inventory once in a while, you wouldn't know what's become damaged and unsaleable. Nobody wants to buy it. And you need to get it out of there so you can put new items in its place. Because the old damaged and unsaleable goods very effectively blocks out the new items coming in. You don't have room for it. If you didn't inventory once in a while in a business, 
And I don't care what it is, whether it's selling ladies' purses, men's watches, bicycles, or whatever. If you did an inventory once in a while, you probably would end up going broke. And I think everybody would agree with that. Well, here's this first comparison between the business inventory and the personal inventory. In our personal lives, we have a business too. And our personal business is the business of finding a way to live where we can be sober and have a little peace of mind and serenity and happiness at the same time. And if we don't inventory in our personal business of sobriety, then we're probably going to go broke too. And going broke for us is simply to go back to drinking. So whether we're taking a business inventory or a personal inventory, in either case, without it, we're probably going to go broke. And I think just about everybody would agree with that. Now then, he says, taking a commercial inventory. And that burned him. He could have said, he could have said just a business inventory, but he don't want to use it twice, so he'll call it commercial this time. Taking a commercial inventory is a fact-finding, and we're putting fact-finding under the business. And a fact-facing process, and we're putting fact-facing under business. It is an effort to discover the truth, and we're putting truth under business about the stock-in-trade. And we're putting stock in trade under business. The stock in trade is what's in there to sell. The ladies' purses, the men's watches, the bicycles, or whatever. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods. And we're putting disclosed damaged or unsaleable goods under business. And to get rid of them promptly and without regret... We're putting get rid of them promptly and without regret under business. If the owner of the business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. He's going to have to be honest. Now, he doesn't like to admit that he made a mistake. And he, say, he may say, well, the reason these ladies aren't buying these purses is they just don't understand what's good for them. And he may keep them in there much, much longer than he should. And if he does, it's going to cost him money every time he does it. He's got to be honest. Is there anybody in here would have any argument with this statement that Bill just made about taking a business inventory? We're going to try to find the facts. When we find them, we're going to face the facts. We're trying to discover the truth about the stock in trade, and we're looking for the damaged and unsaleable goods. The good items don't cause us to go broke. They sell over and over and over every day, and we make money on those. The damaged and unsaleable goods is what's going to cause us to go broke. When we find them, we're going to get them out of there promptly and without regret. Until they are removed, good items cannot take their place. And we're looking for the stock in trade that is damaged. Is that okay with everybody? All right, now watch him. 
He wrote a step for us. Using a series of words that mean exactly the same thing as these words that he used in the business inventory. He said, we made a searching. And we're putting searching straight across from fact-finding. To find the facts, to search out the facts, means the same thing. We made a searching and fearless. And we're putting fearless straight across from fact-facing. To fearlessly look at those things, to face those things as they really are. We made a searching and fearless moral. And there's where we got in trouble. We said, oh, damn, there it is. There's that list of dirty, filthy, nasty items. And we don't want to look at them, and we sure don't want to show them to somebody else. I'm not really sure all Bill Wilson knew. But I know one thing. This guy understood the English language. And I really believe if he'd wanted you and I to make a list of dirty, filthy, nasty items... I think he would have said we made a searching and fearless amoral or immoral inventory. He didn't say that. He said moral. And bugged us and bugged us and bugged us. Finally, we went back to the dictionary. And you know what moral is defined as in a dictionary? Nothing in the world but truth. Things as they really are. The right and wrong of any given situation. So moral and truth mean identically the same thing. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of what? Of ourselves. We're the only stock in trade that we have in this business of staying sober. Nobody else can make us sober. Nobody else can make us drink. Oh, yeah, I'll agree. They can make you thirsty once in a while, but they can't make you drink. We decide whether we drink or not. Now, what part of us decides whether we drink or not? Is it our mind or is it our body? The real problem, the alcoholic centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures we can't. So somewhere up here, in my head up here, I've got some flawed thinking processes that block me off from the sunlight of the Spirit, that keep me from carrying out the decision I've made in step three. And I have to find those flawed thinking processes and get them out of my head promptly and without regret. And it's only when they're gone that God's thinking can take their place. As long as they're there, then God's thinking is blocked out. And I like to look at my head up here as a little bitty store. Not very much. One of these little quick trips or get and goes or come and get it or whatever they call them. Not a hell of a lot up there. And this part of my store, I've got some display cases. And those display cases are filled with resentments. Damn him. Damn her. By God, I'll show them. Next time they do that, I'm going to do this. 
I'm going to get even with those suckers. They're not going to treat me that way. And on and on and on and on. God can't get in those display cases. He's very effectively blocked out by those resentments. Over here in this part of my store, I've got a file cabinet filled with fear. Oh, my God. What's she going to do when she finds out about this one? Oh, my God. What's that banker going to do when that check gets in there? He's already told me he'll file Oh, my God, is that my car sitting out in the front and the front end tore up and I don't? Oh, my God, and on and on and on. and God can't get in there. That file cabinet is already full of fears. He's very effectively blocked out. Back here.